let's get into God's word, okay? Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. The one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. If you've been around here for a while, futile means hevel in the Greek, which means meaningless. It's a void. It's like fog. It's like smoke. You see it. You know it's real. But the moment you try to grab it, what happens? It disappears. And he says the same thing about wealth. When good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. Those moochers, okay? What then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little little or much. This is kind of talking about the poor guy who just makes an honest day's living. But the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. It causes him so much stress. The title of tonight's message is More Money, More Problems. I was going to do the Mo Money, Mo Problems, but I'm a pastor. I need to be a little more professional than that. Let's pray, and we're going to look at Ecclesiastes 5. Father God, thank you for your grace and your love that you pour out on us. And God, I know very attuned to the fact that um, some people, even if they're visiting tonight, they think all churches ever talk about is money. And God, I'm grateful the way that we just go through the scriptures is we just take it one chapter at a time. And chapter five is about money. But God, it's such a huge burden. It's such a huge idol for some of us. It's such a huge pain point for many of us in our relationships and just the way that we view ourselves. And so, God, I'm just asking you for your love to pour over us, that we don't walk out of here feeling shameful for not making enough or embarrassed that we make too much or condemned because of our relationship we've had with wealth in the past. God, I just pray that we'd leave here with joy, with hope, with new direction, with what you can do in and through our lives. And God, we ask for an increase, but only at the capacity by which we can still glorify and worship you in the middle of that increase. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. The church says, amen. Amen. So following the First World War, there's this man called Edward Bernays. He's actually, fascinatingly enough, the nephew of Sigmund Freud, whom we have talked about sometimes. He's a philosopher. And so this man, Edward Bernays, set out to change forever the American economy, and he succeeded. So what did he do? Bernays, he took two influences from his past and from his surroundings and put them together. One was his uncle. His uncle, Sigmund Freud, had a theory on human behavior. And his whole idea, it's not based in scripture, but it also is a critique of culture at that time. Up until Sigmund Freud, we all kind of thought, because of the Enlightenment era, we are what we think. And so humans are rational. And so if you give a human, here are the logic of both, uh, here, pick A or B. They believed, okay, we would always pick the thing that makes the most sense. Freud goes, no, 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 no. We don't ever pick the thing that makes the most sense. We pick the thing that feels the best. And then we try to justify why that decision makes sense, which is actually kind of true, is it not? We justify our behaviors. What the scripture would call it is the flesh or sin. And so we say this is right only because we want to engage in that sin a little bit longer. Although he has a lot of very troubling thoughts that we've preached against very often. But there is something about we often make decisions based off of our own desires that are warped because of sin. So he taps into that. When he's marketing, he's thinking about human behavior and that you want to feel more than anything. The second thing he taps into is the wartime propaganda. So when he was, in, uh, he was serving in the First World War, he actually, his vision was so bad he couldn't be a soldier. And that's me. I can't see nothing if these contacts are out. It is the worst, okay? Now, 
Here's what he did, though. He was able to stay stateside and create literature to convince Americans that the war was good. It was a worthy thing to fight for. And so he tried to convince people of that. So he had some experience. But what he really was fascinated by, we'll get done with him soon. What he was fascinated by, though, is the Germans. The Germans were so successful with propaganda. It actually pointed to World War II. They got even more successful with it. Right, And so he is fascinated with this idea. And then he had this conundrum. He had this thought. Wait a minute. What if I brought these two experiences and used them not during the war, but during peace times? How can I market not a nation, but a product and convince people to buy it? And so he actually did amazing at it. And marketing has never been the same. Perhaps his most famous achievement was using a single ad to convince women that smoking was for them too. There was this huge issue that the the cigarette companies were having that it seemed like it's only a male-only activity. And so in one photo, he took a picture of seven women together smoking, and the headline says, Torches of Freedom. And immediately it it lit up this, this feminist movement, and women were flocking to the stores. It's not a cigarette, it's a torch of freedom. Kind of talking about the Statue of Liberty too, right? And boom, here's what Edward Bernays did. He shifted our economy from this product will help you to this product will heal you. You know that problem you have deep down, that identity issue? This product will help. That's why car commercials are all about like adventure and you being a real man and having a cat that acts like a dog, like what in the world, right? It's not, they don't just lift, list off all the features of this truck. They tell you why you're now the best. You're going to have a cat that's a dog, which makes no sense to me, right? This product will heal you. And so 100 years later, he was so successful, we have never seen marketing the same again. Marketing's always this way. In fact, products, and I learn this often, and I love kind of studying this, products who simply share their features are always failures. Simon Sinek made this popular by saying, share the why, Why would this product heal you and save your life? People don't buy things just because it helps. They buy things because it heals. And so from a Christian perspective, we know nothing you buy will heal. Amen? What Jesus did when he bought us on the cross, that's what what will heal us. Nothing else will. But we have to, even as Christians, recognize the way that you and I on a normal basis, if we're not very intentional by the way we look at money, by the way we look at the products and the marketing in our world, we too can easily be swayed by the propaganda of our culture and it will deform our souls. John Mark Comer put it this way. He says, when the external pull of propaganda comes together with the internal push of greed, I love that, so we're not innocent here. It's not just because the big bad guy does propaganda. No, it only works because you and I are greedy The result when those two things come together is a sabotage of the very life that we all crave. There's really the heartbeat behind Ecclesiastes. It's these things coming together, listening to what the world says is hope-filled. And when we do those things, we think it's going to achieve this life that we crave, and yet we are emptier than ever before. I know so many of us, we crave to give. We want to be a generous people. But we're so caught up in this push and pull, we have nothing in our bank account to give. I know many of us, we want to be content with our money. But the greed and propaganda, they continually have the last laugh. We continually give in. What do we do? So Ecclesiastes chapter 5, 
he addresses this. And I think it's really helpful for us. Now, some more context. There's two perspectives on who is writing this book. And I'll be brief here. Number one is King Solomon. A lot of people think he is the one who wrote this book. He's at the end of his life realizing how much he squandered his life. If you read his story in First and Second Kings, he winds up not being very wise at all. Um, he pursues the world and finds it empty. And so he think, many think he wrote this book as his last love letter to the world saying, don't do what I did. Other people think it's actually the wisdom of all the kings put together. So somebody kind of spoke in, in the perspective of a king, but it takes all the lessons of all the kings, not just Solomon. And, and that's a really helpful perspective. Either way, the point is it's a perspective of somebody who is not broke. This isn't somebody saying money's the worst because he never had it and he's just being jealous. No, this guy had everything. This person owned the, the hills and the cattle on them, very wealthy. And yet this man still says, and I still found it to be hevel. I still found it to be meaningless. And I know what you're thinking. All right, Lord, give me all the money and I'll see. I'll, 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 I'll do a better job with it than, that, than homeboy over here. I know. And that's what's hard about us. We're so stubborn. We don't want to learn other people's lessons. We say, okay, let me experience it for myself first. And then I can declare if money really is hevel. And that's what's hard. And that's why we have to submit ourselves to the scriptures. So let's do that together. Verse 8 in chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes. He says, if you see oppression of the poor and perversion of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be astonished at the situation. Because one official protects another official and higher officials protect them. He's actually talking about corporate greed, societal injustices that we believe this. There are sinful structures in this world because it's ran by sinful people. And so wealth is a huge part of this. There's corruption and they don't, they, an official hides the sins of the other official because if they expose it, it might risk their job and their income. There's all, money is tied to everything, right? Aladdin taught me this. It's the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules, right? And these rules are perverted is what he's saying. Verse nine, the profit from the land is taken by all. The king is served by the field. What this means is the king even kind of, he already has enough, but he still takes what you have for his own benefit. It's talking about how people buy their way into power. They use public positions for personal gain and they manipulate the system for their own advantage. This is life. It's not just an America problem. It's everywhere because money corrupts. And those who are high in positions of power, they should use their authority to serve. But money is so, so enticing. And they forget the purpose that they were there in the first place, which is to be a public servant. So verse 8 and 9, he kind of really addresses the societal structures of sin because of money. But 10 and following are now personal. So now think about yourself. Don't think about your neighbor. All right. Think about, okay, how do I fall into this? myself. Verse 10, the one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. In other words, people who live for money are never satisfied. You know why? The more you have, the more you want. The more you have, the less you're satisfied. I saw a recent study, and it said there are, let, let's be real, let's be honest, there are certain elements where it's like, yeah, um, person with $10,000 a year probably isn't as happy as the person with $50,000 a year. Like you can kind of point to that. And the studies were showing, yes, until you hit 75,000 a year, which with inflation, what does that even mean anymore? Right. But according to this study, 
75,000 a year, you can, you can legitimately say your life gets better until that point. But according to the study, everything above 75, it doesn't help your life at all. It just adds more stress. So there's something about that number according to, this isn't a biblical study, but there's something to it. Verse 11, when good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. What then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? What is he saying here? Other people will take your money. The moment you get rich, you all of a sudden have a ton of friends. You notice that, right? This is what happens all the time. See, the more you have, the more people, which includes the government, will take it from you. The more you have, the more you realize it does you no good. But a lot of us are like, let me have that personal experience myself. Verse 12, the sleep of the worker is sweet. An honest day's living, right? Whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. Again, what is verse 12 saying? More money, more problems. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. Why is he not sleeping? He's thinking about all of his money that's uh, in certain places. He's stressed out about it, right? Always thinking. That's why my father, he, he actually has done a really successful concrete business. And he's always saying, do you want to take it over? And I'm like, the money's good, but the stress, no way. You know, like sometimes you make a lot of money, the next job they take it all from you because like, it's just no way. That, I'm not saying that that's evil in and of itself, but I just know I have enough stress in my life. I got three girls, y'all. You know what I'm saying? So I don't need to be at, money adds stress. When you're the boss, there's something about clocking in, clocking out. It's really nice. Verse 13, there is a sickening tragedy I have seen under the sun. This is an important phrase to remember in this text. Remember, under the sun means what? Under the sun means you're living as if there is no God. So all this is important in context. Saying money is miserable if that's all there is. We're going to end that way too to recognize that God-centered life actually can enjoy money for what it is. Under the sun, wealth kept by its owner to his harm. The more you have, the more the harm. Verse 14. That wealth was lost in a bad venture. I heard the stock market was terrible this week. Did you guys hear about that? I don't have any money to put into it, so I'm not really that affected. But I heard it was bad, okay? So so when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. Can you imagine? You did so successful, and then one bad stock move. You didn't diversify your funds. I know that word, right? And then all of a sudden, you're in a bad situation. As he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again naked as he came. This is actually taken from the book of Job here. He will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. This too is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so he will go. You came naked, you'll leave naked, okay? Nothing with you. What does the one gain who struggles for the wind? It's like a chasing after the wind. There's nothing there. So, sun's game is on, so I'll see you. No, I'm just kidding. Now, what does this mean for us? Because this is actually a pretty negative view on money, And it's like, wow, thank you, Lord. Like, I was hoping for a raise, and now what am I supposed to do? And so this is a tough passage. And in fact, spoiler alert, 17 through 20 is a little bit more hopeful, but we're going to hold on to that for a little bit. The problem we have, we have to ask this question. What do we do with this information? Because we know, and we have not just the Bible, which I love that the Bible proves this. I love that society comes up with these stats and says, yeah, a lot of money is bad for you. It's like, yeah, Ecclesiastes said this a long time ago, brother, right? What do we do with this as Christians? 1 Timothy 6.10, it says, the, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. People say this wrong all the time. First of all, it's love of money, not money, is a root, not the root, of all kinds, not all, evil. So you'll hear this all the time. Money is the root of all evil. That is an improper 
citation of that passage. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. There are other evils, but there's all kinds of evils when you love money. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith. Isn't that incredible? This has such a powerful pull on our souls that you can say you follow Jesus and yet money can begin to choke you out and make you leave the faith entirely and pierce themselves with many griefs. Money betrays our soul. It makes us become people we don't want to become. So what does that mean? Okay, so let's look at this this way. There are two extreme reactions Christians have with money. Number one is called the poverty gospel. Number two is what's called the prosperity gospel. Now, poverty gospel, what does this mean? Poverty gospel, this is popular in some circles, church world, because here's what's hard. There is scriptures you can find that talk all about how bad money is. There's also other scriptures you can find that say, like, money's a great gift. Praise the Lord if you're rich. Make sure you give, right? So how do you balance this together? Poverty gospel, oh, sorry. Poverty gospel is one of them. So what does this mean? Be poor and hungry in the name of Jesus. It, like, really worships this idea to be a Christian means to be broke, The problem with that is we don't see that in the text. In fact, you actually see all people throughout all the Bible. There's a lot of rich, wealthy people that God uses for the glory of God. What I've really seen with people who are really holding on to poverty gospel is they have this idea that you are righteous because of what you don't have. But my Bible says you are righteous because of what Christ has and gave to you. Amen? You are not perfect because you don't own things. You are perfect in the eyes of God because Christ owns you. And what I've seen in the poverty gospel is there's no rejoicing. People with poverty gospel, they don't, they don't know how to have fun. They don't know how to say, like, thank you, God. They're scared when they receive a gift. That's a bad place to be in. The second one is prosperity gospel. This is just as toxic. Prosperity gospel says be happy and wealthy in the name of Jesus. And if Jesus loves you, then you're going to be super wealthy. And so it kind of gets perverted to this point where if you are favored by God, you're going to be rich. But I have met way too many incredible men and women of God who are not rich in wealth, but they're rich in many other things. And I know that God isn't punishing them. Here's what's wrong with prosperity gospel. So poverty is there's no rejoicing, but prosperity is there's no repenting. A prosperity gospel church just comes and says, God, what are you going to give me next? When we should come and say, God, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I'm coming not to learn what my next big investment is and how God's going to bless me. I'm coming to say, God, where do I turn from sin? How do I turn to you and repent? This is the call that God has called us to. Money is a complex issue. It's really complex for the soul. Because here's what we know. Too much of it brings harm, produces greed, which destroys relationships, and brings a lot of emptiness. But not enough of it makes you homeless. Not enough of it means you're hungry. Not enough of it means some people are start, literally starving to death. So how do we balance that? That's why we have 1 Timothy 6. He continues. He says, Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, 
to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Okay, there's a lot here, but I want us to work through this, okay? Now, if the camera guy, if we can keep that on me, that way YouTube, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm tech distracted here. I don't want to show the slides anymore. That way that uh, online people can see my face. Now, because come on, I'm just kidding. Now, so no laughter. All right, now I'm nervous. Now, here's what it is. Money. This is what that passage is saying. Money is a useful helper, but a terrible healer. What, is the, what, what do the products want you to think? Money will heal you. The Bible's saying money will not heal you. In fact, it will hurt you if you love it. This is what, so so the scriptures are are, are very honest about this. Look, sin deforms us from the way of God. We're gathering here together because we're broken. Our, Our sin has broken us and it's left us shattered. We need healing. Our sin, it empties us and it leaves us hollow. We need healing. That's why you're here tonight. Our sin hurts us and hurts those around us and it leaves us wounded. We need healing. We all know this inherently, or you wouldn't be here right now. This is something we all know. Now, the Bible says repeatedly, you don't just need help. You don't need some product to make you happy. No, you need a healing, a deep, profound healing. You need to be healed by the sins done by you. You've hurt yourself and others, and you have sinned against God. You need healing because of the sin done to you. You've been hurt and wounded by the greediness of others, by the brokenness of others. And not only that, but you need healing from the sins done around you. Maybe sin affects us, not even when it's to us directly, but even generationally. There's things going on around us, and we need healing. We need brokenness. That's why it's so popular in culture to look to therapy, to look to all these things. How do we need healing? And that's when money steps in and says, I will heal you. I'll be your healer. Money is a great helper but the worst healer. It thrills, and then it kills. Money fascinates, and then it assassinates. And we can look at history. You could probably look at your family tree to prove that that's true. And let me say this real quick. The poor can be just as much in love with money as the rich. Some of the poor, we can say, oh, I love money, but I don't have it, but I want it. The rich, they love money. They just don't have enough of it right? None of us are immune here, no matter what your salary is at. Now, I want us to look at, there are three deceptions money whispers to us, and I know you can feel it. This is what happens. It happens even to me this week, which I'll talk about. Number one, my healing comes from what I can do. My healing comes from what I can do, and guess what helps you do things? Money. Money makes you powerful. Money gives you the ability to, to skip certain steps, to, to I know uh, I heard a pastor say, man, we don't pray for things because it's a lot easier just to pay for things, right? My healing comes from what I can do, and money helps me do things, so that's what I need. I need money. The second thing that money promises is my healing comes from what others think. My healing comes, you can put that on, the, on that slide. The quote's not supposed to be there yet, so go to number two, please. My healing comes from what others think. Did we just skip number two? Is it just not there? I'm I'm having a great day, y'all. Nope, we skipped number two. Promise you it's supposed to be there. Here's what it's supposed to say. My healing comes from what others think about me. What do you think is going to make people love you? 
If you have a lot of money, it does make you some friends. It gives you prestige. 5.11, what we just read, it says, even that, what other people think of you, it's Hevel. Here's a good quote that I think is helpful. He says, oh, I see, you put it up there on the top. I got it. All right, now, there is a paradox here. People tend to want wealth to signal to others that they should be liked and admired. But in reality, those other people often bypass admiring you, not because they don't think wealth is admirable, but because they use your wealth as a benchmark for their own desires to be liked and admired. So they don't even look at you and think you're cool. They, they imagine, man, imagine me being him. So they don't even like you. They just like the fact that uh, I could be you. You see that? It just goes right past. And so even that, it's not get, you're not going to get healing from what others think. You're just going to be used. That's what it says in verse 11. The last thing is my healing comes from what I can have. Money promises to give you possessions that you need. And we think, man, if I just have what I need, then everything will be okay. I tell my wife all the time, if I just don't have to worry about how much things cost at a restaurant, I've made it. Anybody else think that, right? If I could just go to any steakhouse and not stress, I'm in. I don't care what car I run. I don't care what I, The house can be whatever. But if I can just not stress about what I eat, that'd be great. Right? We keep thinking that. It's these lies. And for verse 13 of chapter 5 Solomon or whoever the king is says, this too is Hevel. It's never enough possessions. In fact, the more possessions you get, the more stressed out you get. In my own personal journey, I've always known that money's a helper. Like I grew up in the church. I'm a pastor's kid, fourth generation pastor. Like, you know, I know money's not God. It's just good. It's not a healer. But even this week, I've acted otherwise. Like I was like, wow, God, I'm preaching on money this week. And like, I have thought more about it than normal. For me and my wife, like this month alone, I, I only share this to just try to whatever, relate, but it, like this, this month alone, the last two weeks, we've had like $1,500 in expenses, emergency expenses we, we had to do. And that really hurt our budget. You know, we had to pay for it. Um, but now we're in a tough spot and it stinks. And it's like, man, everything, my budget works great as long as nothing breaks down. Anybody else, right? Like this, is, this works as long as everything works. And things were breaking down. I know that I feel the sting of inflation. Have you noticed, right? It's so hard. De I, I have a diesel truck, y'all. 5.49 a gallon. It's frustrating. And all those things, like I, I felt this sting. And me and my wife, we fantasize often about, man, if we sell our home now, but we're like, but we can't buy anything else. Like, what do we do? Like, seems incredible to have money in our bank account, but I don't have a bed. Like, what, which one do I do? Anybody else feel that, right? It's just, and I think about it every day. And it stresses me out. And I get so angry because I think, man, I see other people who are lazy and they're making bank. I'm working hard. And no, you know, and it, it's frustrating. And I've had to come and I had to preach this to my heart this week that, Trey, money won't heal anything. This isn't, that's not what you need. That's not going to fix all your problems. There's a deeper issue here. And I have testimony after testimony. God's taking care of us. He makes a way. There are times where we're down to almost zero, and I think, oh, no, I just got to gotta fast this week, you know, just to, <laughs> I'm going to make this spiritual, even though I would eat something if I could, right? This such tough situations, and even in our own church family, we've had to bless very many of you, because you've just been in hard spots, and, and we know it's just, life is hard, and things happen, and things break, and the inflation, and all those things put together. But we as a people, here's what I want us to leave with. We have to know this is the life of a Jesus follower. We have to declare in our hearts, even though money sounds logically the best thing you and I need right now, the scripture says it's not, so we need to trust it. And here, here's the encouragement. We need to detect the lies 
and surrender to the truth of God from the word of God. And what are the lies? That money can give us what we need. We detect those lies and go, you know what? This, this obsession I'm feeling within my heart, I had to do this week. This feeling that I need more money, I'm detecting that as a lie and I'm gonna go to your word. You know what? Money's not what I need. Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. So I'm gonna say that over my life. This also requires us to read our Bibles, by the way, in order to know the truth to speak over it. Another one is, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Who said that? Jesus himself. Read it in Acts 20. Guys, I, this week I thought, it'd be a real big blessing to receive this week. But my Bible says it's actually more blessed to give. I have to believe that. If we pick and choose what to follow, we'll have a faith that's fake and hollow. We have to say, okay, this is the truth, so I'm going to live it. And it's hard. Another one, Matthew 6, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Pastor Caleb was just referencing this. Jesus himself says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. There's context to that, of course, and I encourage you to read it. Some of us, we're, we're treasuring the wrong things. Proverbs 11, one person gives freely and yet gains even more. He goes on to talk about the stingy person, always has even less. Habakkuk, I think, it talks about how they try to save all these coins in their pockets, but because they're so greedy and stingy, God has put holes in those pockets, and the more they put it in, the more it just falls right out. Do we believe, friends, if we're followers of Jesus, this is what we do. We detect the lies and surrender to the truth of God from the word of God. It's what we do. And it's hard, but we preach that truth to our heart and say, I don't care what my head thinks. This is, I, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't care what I think. I need to care what the word says. And I'm gonna preach that to my head and I'm gonna make sure to preach it to my heart. I saw something John Acuff said today. I thought it was so good on Instagram. He said, the head runs but the heart walks. Some of us are frustrated because we know in our head that money is just a helper, not a healer. Give your heart time to also know that lesson. It's at a different pace. You gotta, you gotta be slower with it, but be patient to believe that truth. Teacher in Ecclesiastes, he has a bit of a surprise ending because he sounds super pessimistic about money. But then he says this. He says, here's what I've seen to be good. It's appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good and all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life, God has given him, because that is his reward. Furthermore, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth, because this is a gift from him, he has also allowed him to enjoy them. Take his reward and rejoice in his labor. Don't be guilty. Like, praise the Lord for the gifts he's given you. Why? This is a gift of God. This is the crux of it. Money is not God, but it's a gift from God. And that changes everything. For he does not often consider the days of his life. How beautiful would that be? Why? Because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. I pray that money is a blessing to you that empowers you to say, God, thank you. Thank you for this. And when you, if you, God's not giving you a lot of it, thank you because, you know what, there's less to stress about. My prayer this week has been that, that God in your heart would keep you occupied with joy that money can never provide, but God can. What if we did that? See, the problem isn't the money. It's if it's your master. But God is such a better master. Are you seeing life as a gift? When you do, it changes your perspective. And I think it's one reason why Jesus actually joyfully invites us to give our money, because it's a declaration of freedom. It's to say, money, you don't own me. 
Write this down, the last one. I own money, but my money doesn't own me. So I'm grateful for it. I don't have to have it, though, because it doesn't own me. I am owned by God and God alone, and this is the hope we have in the gospel. This is the truth we can hold on to.